Well, if you would, remain standing, and if you have a Bible with you this morning, would you turn there with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, our passage for this morning, as we come to the end of this great, long psalm. I'll read from verses 161 to 176 in Psalm 119. And then we'll sing one more song before we spend some time studying these verses together. This is what God's word says. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I've chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you. And let your rules help me. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. As I said, this brings us to the end of this great long psalm, Psalm 119, and our 12-week study of it. And since it is our last week in Psalm 119, I want to do something a little different to begin our study I want to take several minutes to zoom out, not just zoom out on the whole of Psalm 119, but to zoom out to see Psalm 119's location within the book of Psalms, or what sometimes is called the Psalter. I want us to see that the location of Psalm 119 in the book of Psalms matters because there is a coherent organization to the book of Psalms. So you can think of this as an introduction or an introductory point, which we might call Psalm 119 within the Psalter. Again, there is a purposeful organization to the book of Psalms, and I want to argue and show you that there is a very heavy emphasis on what is kingly or messianic in this organization of the Psalms, and I want to show you eventually that that matters for Psalm 119. So again, this will be a little different than some, how, some, how some sermons begin. Uh, bear with me. Maybe put your thinking caps on. Make sure you have a Bible open with me to the book of Psalms, and we'll be doing some flipping in it. And I'd encourage you to do all the flipping or whatever you have on your device. However you get to other passages, do that. So you can see some of these things for yourselves. Now before we look through any psalms, uh, there are two different 
important background passages that we have to come in mind, have, have to keep in mind when we come to the Psalms. One would be Deuteronomy 17. You can look it up later on your own. I won't turn there. But in Deuteronomy 17, we have God's prescription for Israel's future king. What's he to be like? Well, he's to be godly, of course, and, and humble. And he's to be a man of the Bible. He was supposed to write his own copy of the law and have it with him, keep it with him, read it and study it every day. Another passage to keep in mind is 2 Samuel 7, which records for us the covenant made with David. There God promised to David an eternal throne, a lineage that he would bless forever and ever. Now, with those two passages in mind, go to the beginning of the book of Psalms, Psalm 1 and 2. Again, just glance down and notice this for yourself. Notice what you might know already. Psalm 1 and 2 really function like a preface to the whole book of Psalms. Everyone agrees these stand out as a preface to the whole book of Psalms and set up the rest. And in Psalm 1, it's about the blessed man who is a Bible man. He meditates on God's word day and night, and thus he's blessed. And every one of God's people should be like that, of course. But keep Deuteronomy 17 closely in mind. This was especially true and necessary for Israel's king. He must be a, a man of the Bible who meditates on the word day and night. And of course, Psalm 2 is directly related to that king, the king, it's about God's anointed there, also called his son in Psalm 2. And he'll be blessed by God and be a blessing to all and any who will pay him homage and bow down before him. Of course, he'll be opposed by many, leading to their peril. But there's blessing in him for all who acknowledge him. So Bible and king. These two major themes are drawn out and developed in the rest of the book of Psalms. And really, it happens over five different books. You may have been reading in the Psalms at one point in your Christian life, and you come across a heading that just says, Book 2. Maybe you scratch your head. Maybe you look something up on the Internet. Sure enough, it's there. Book 1 is Psalms 1 to 41. Book 2... Psalm 42 to 72. Book 3, 73 to 89. Book 4, 90 to 106. And book 5 starts at 107. Now these are editorial editions, not in the original Hebrew texts. So why should we trust them? Why do we think they're legitimate? Well, let me show you at the end of Psalm 41. Look there. We're going to see a mile marker placed down. We wouldn't know it's a mile marker, marker until we come to the next one. Psalm 41, verse 13, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen. And then go to Psalm 72, verses 18 to 19. Here towards the end of book 2, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, Verse 19, blessed be his glorious name forever. 
What if we went to the end of book three? Well, sure enough, Psalm 89, verse 52, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. And one more, Psalm 106, verse 48, the end of book four. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. None of these is worded exactly the same as the others, but it's so close it has to be some sort of intended construction of mile marking, we could say. It's like a a summation or a, a, a culmination, an exclamation. God is blessed forever. What's more is there seems to be, at the end of each one of these books, a Davidic or messianic intention. There seems to be an emphasis toward the end of each one of these books with a a psalm that is usually Davidic or kingly or majestic or, or about the exile. Now let me just quickly give you a thumbnail sketch of what each of these books is about and how they work together without showing you details. Book one, Psalms 1 to 41, minus the preface, These are psalms mostly by King David. They're mostly coming from the time when, well, when he was on the run. He was being hunted. He had been anointed king, but not yet appointed king. And King Saul opposed him. And so out of his heartache and trial, he writes poems and songs of trust to God. These psalms are mostly about God installing his man, his king, in spite of great opposition. That's book one. Now book two, you can think of that section as a a passing of the royal baton from King David to his son Solomon. Psalm 72, towards the end, it ends like this, verse 20, the prayers of David are ended. Now, the prayers of David are not ended. There are more prayers of David still to come in the book of Psalms. But it signals a transition. It's meant to communicate in a psalm about Solomon or to Solomon. There's a changing of the guards. There's a passing of the baton. Book 3, Psalm 73 to 89. There, God chastises his king. And his people. 73 announces that an exile is coming for God's people. That's the Babylonian captivity. Book 3 is the darkest of all the books of the Psalms. Psalm 88 is a perfect example. Look, Look at that. It's long, we won't read it. It's a lament psalm. These are common in the book of Psalms. But what's unique about Psalm 88 is this lament psalm never takes a turn toward something more optimistic. It never turns toward hope or trust or confidence. It ends on a minor key. And of course, the last psalm in this book, Psalm 89, is about reminding God of his promises to King David. It basically reviews 2 Samuel 7 and the Davidic covenant. Because, remember, exile's coming, a time when there will be no king in Israel or Judah. And people will wonder, 
What about those promises of David's throne forever and ever? God, have you forgotten? Remember your covenant with David. That's Psalm 89. You can think of Book 4, Psalms 90 to 106, as representing that time during the exile. And here the emphasis is on the fact that God is still king. Psalms 93 to 99 have this chorus, the Lord reigns. And you need that when you're in a foreign land and there's no king on the throne. The Lord is still in charge. Psalm 106 ends with a prayer for the exile to end. And guess what? Psalm 107, the first psalm of the fifth book, highlights God's answer to prayer. In fact, really, the, the whole section does of book five. For, for so much, the emphasis is on God answering prayer, him hearing the cries of his people. Of course, not long into that book, we get to those psalms of ascents in which the pilgrims were going home back to Jerusalem. Many of the psalms in the last book are written by David. They're praise psalms. Whereas there was a heavy emphasis on lament in the first book, now they're written by David and the emphasis is on praise. It's like the king has returned. It's like the king sings again. In fact, book five ends with five lofty praise psalms. Psalms 146 to 150. They function like a celebration of the answers to prayer. God has done it finally, and now praise should go global to every corner of the universe and to every instrument that's ever been made. And within these lofty praise psalms at the end in book five, right there in the middle, Psalm 148, verse 14, we get a little phrase that you could read over so quickly if you didn't know where it came from and what it means. There it says, God has raised up a horn for his people. A horn? This is the king's military victory. In fact, it represents the king himself. It's what Hannah talked about in her famous prayer in 1 Samuel 2. The Lord will exalt his anointed. He will lift up his horn. The king, his horn. It's about the king. There's also a return to the theme that we saw at the very beginning of the Psalter in the last five Psalms. Blessed is something we read about. Blessed are the people to whom to whom such blessings flow. Blessed are the people who have God, the God of Jacob, as their help. So, so take notice that there is a grand scheme development within these 150 psalms. It's not like someone shuffled the deck of the psalms and here's what we got. These are all put together like they are to tell a story of God raising up a king in spite of great opposition, and that king trusts his God. God will exalt his king. He'll see to it that David's throne and his reign will last beyond one generation. The baton will get past. Of course, God will chastise his king, whether David or Solomon or whomever. He'll chastise his people as well. He'll lead them 
into judgment and captivity in exile. But don't worry, God is still king. And it will come to an end. He'll bring his people back. He'll exalt his king. God will raise up a horn. And the whole world will eventually join in praise to God. Now, Psalm 119 sits within this last book, book 5. And it's lofty and ideal, like many psalms in this section are. It's not without trouble, but, but it's lofty. Psalm 119 shows us the ideal Israelite, or maybe the ideal king. As a man who's navigating the troubles of life quite well with his Bible in prayer before his God. Psalm 119 exemplifies the principles of Psalm 1. Psalm 119 is something like the personal diary of the Deuteronomy 17-like king. So just like the book of Psalms began with two psalms, one about Bible, the other about the king. So those shape and direct the rest of the Psalter, and we should go looking for them and not be surprised to find them. A couple of clarifications, if I might. This doesn't mean that the book of Psalms now is depersonalized for you. This doesn't mean that you can't take a single psalm by itself, read it, study it, pray it, and get benefit from it. It doesn't mean that if you haven't known about the five books in the Messianic emphasis your whole Christian life, that the psalms have been useless to you. You know that's not true. But the Messianic shape of the Psalter gives another layer of meaning and significance. If you were reading the Psalms two-dimensionally before, here's a third. It also reminds us that the Bible isn't just a book of inspiring quotes, you know, from which we mine our favorites to put on our coffee mugs and calendars. No, it isn't even a book of merely just instruction or merely good examples or bad examples. The messianic shape of the Psalms reminds us of that long wait in Old Testament days for the Redeemer to come, for the one to come, the one first promised in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman who would defeat the serpent, the lion-like ruler from Judah, according to Genesis 49. A king which the Lord will choose, according to 1 Samuel. The final and true son of David, who is eternal, as was spoken of in the Davidic covenant. Or what is called the Lord's servant in the later prophets. We'll see today that the end of Psalm 119 marks something of the promise of and, and the prescriptions for a Bible-saturated king and his people. And it also points to another, better, Bible-oriented, Bible-saturated king, one that was still to come in the days of Psalm 119, one that has come from our vantage point now. So let's look at the last two stanzas of this great long psalm. We've already read it. 
We can break it down now according to four themes, all related to living in the tension. There are various tensions within the passage. The first theme we could call perspective on the world. Perspective on the world. Notice how it begins with verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Yeah, he's aware of his trouble. The trouble is real. But he has a different perspective and a different focus. Ed Welch has written an enormously helpful book that I hope every one of us reads someday. It's called When God is Big and... No, I got it backwards. When People Are Big and God is Small. Now, it should be when God is big and people are small, but we know that that's not often how our brains and our hearts work. Often the, the people and the problems of our life loom large and God is, is small. It's like the problems of life, people who get in the way or bother us or cause us trouble, all that is center stage. And God is somewhere off to the side doing who knows what. So we should ask, what seems impressive to us? Who are we trying to impress? If it's important people that we're impressed with and are trying to impress, and if it's their power that we're after, as long as we play according to the rules, well, you're going to miss out on this alternative perspective. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Really, there are questions in two different directions to be asked here. One regarding the world, the other regarding the word. And as it goes with one, so it goes with the other. You cannot love God and money. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus said. Like, like a balance, like a scale. When one goes up, the other one goes down. When one is heavy, the other one must be lighter. This man in Psalm 119, he knew about the weight of being persecuted without cause by princes and persecuted almost unto death but God's word was a bigger deal what do you stand in awe of people power problems well for this man he stood in awe of God's word and whatever your problems are it may not be persecution. It probably isn't. It may not even be people. But whatever your problems, let the other side of the scales weigh heavier with God's word. Stand in awe of little nuggets like this in 2 Corinthians 4 where Paul says, this light momentary affliction, which wasn't light and it seemed long, all that persecution and stoning and imprisonment and abandonment. 
This light momentary affliction, Paul says, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He uses that same kind of comparison language in Romans 8, verse 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, I know that that kind of perspective doesn't come naturally to us. It doesn't come instantly to any of us. It's not like a switch is flipped and now we see straight and now we don't doubt and now we don't groan or moan. No, there's tension. There's tension. There's temptation. But there is comfort. There's great peace. Verse 165, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. It's not that they don't ever stumble. They do. But nothing makes them stumble. They're sure. They're on solid ground. That's what happens when we stand on God's word and look into it to awe what it says. Well, this leads to and overlaps with, secondly, a passion for the word. A passion for the word. Verse 162, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Picture it. A soldier after a battle, bloodied, maybe some of his own blood, more of his enemies. The battle is now done, and now the job is to take stock, to assess losses and gains, to discover what's been won. But someone has to find it. Someone has to find the enemy's loot, and so soldiers search it out. They wonder, where do they keep the treasure here? They go around building to building, land to land. And imagine this weary soldier happens upon a storehouse of the enemy's gold and silver. And he smiles and his jaw drops as he takes it in and he yells out, I found it! I found it! Well, that's the metaphor here for discovering and experiencing and enjoying God's word. It's represented in a new Christian who just begins to find out that this book is alive, that there are wondrous things here in this book. It happens in the well-worn paths of long-time Christians who simply take a little nibble from the Bible on a mundane Tuesday morning and believe they have their daily bread. It's when a suffering saint keeps reading and flipping and reading and crying and humbly asking God, Like in verse 82, when will you comfort me? When will you comfort me? And then he happens upon some new realization, some fresh discovery, 
Or maybe an old familiar promise that had gotten dusty and he pulls it up out of the ground. He blows on it. He holds it up to the light. It shines on his eyes and into his heart and soul. By the way, I should clarify something that I didn't think to clarify in this series on Psalm 119. That is until I saw a tweet yesterday by a well-known Bible teacher to women. She talked about how sometimes she's so desperate to get more of the Bible in her, she will simply open the passage she's studying and lay on her bed with the Bible open on her. And sometimes she puts it over her face and lays like that. And I was surprised not only to read that, but then to see about 95% of the comments that followed where people apparently do this same kind of thing in various ways. One lady said, uh, uh, I have the baptism Bible, you know, a, a Bible that was given at your baptism. I keep that under my pillow and I sleep on top of it. Another woman said, I go to sleep every night just h holding it in my chest like it's a, you know, a hot water bottle. Can I just say, the Bible doesn't work that way. The Bible doesn't do things based on its proximity. It is not a hot water bottle. It is not a heating pad. It is not even a pillow. It's a Bible. It's just a book. It's not just a book, but it is, first and foremost, a book. And therefore, we have to read it, not just hug it. And its proximity does nothing except cause us to trust in vain things, dare I say. Now, for the Christian, there is a kind of Jesus-centeredness to all this that we find in the Bible. In Matthew 13, Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven, which he's introducing and offering to people. He says it's like a treasure buried in a field, and a man comes across it, he buries it real fast, and he goes and sells all that he has in order to buy the land so he can have the treasure. He said it's like a, a pearl merchant who finds the pearl of great price, and he does everything he can to have that one pearl. Well, Jesus is that treasure. Jesus is that one pearl. You think of the men on the road to Emmaus whom Jesus met with and taught. They said afterwards, didn't our hearts burn within us when he taught to us the scriptures? And we will probably never get a teaching moment where Jesus literally and physically walks with us down a road. But we have the same Bible that he taught them and more. And we have more than what they knew of their Bible. And so we go to the Bible to find the treasure of Jesus specifically. There, we can rejoice like one who finds great spoil. So are you doing it? Here we come to the end of our series. If you've been with us at all, I hope, I pray, I, I really have prayed much that there have been some steps toward Bible. Maybe for you that means more discipline. Maybe for you it means being freed up to enjoy the Bible 
and not be threatened by it. Some of us grew up in church traditions where what was called the quiet time or devotions was the sole litmus test to know whether you were walking with the Lord or not. So if you did your devotions that morning, you can probably plan on a pretty good dinner. And if you didn't, well, you're probably going to stub your toe in the middle of the night. He'll get you. That's not right. That's really bad, in fact. However, some of us have become, well, pretty darn comfortable with an almost Bible-less Christianity, apart from Sundays. I think a lot of Christians, more than we would care to know, more than we would want to admit, a lot of us, I think, know that we should read the Bible more, think that one day we will, eh. But another week goes by, another week goes by, another week goes by. We need Jesus. We need his word. We need to not just read it. We need to come to love it. This leads to and overlaps with praise. Thirdly, praise for the word. He says in verse 164, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Morning and evening prayers were common in Old Testament Israel. So that'd be twice a day. For the more dedicated, there were midday prayers as part of the rhythm of the temple. So that'd be three times a day. But this man attests to praying seven times a day. And we probably shouldn't take that in a woodenly literal sort of way. It probably wasn't seven versus six or eight. Seven is the number of completeness. And so he's probably talking about frequent prayer, all-day prayer, what the New Testament calls praying without ceasing or, or praying always. Now, there wouldn't be anything wrong with scheduling times to pray, even if it be seven slots. There wouldn't be anything wrong with setting a timer on your phone to remind you at different intervals to stop and pray. In fact, most of us, especially in our hectic culture, in our constant distraction, most of us will probably need some kind of mechanism or plan if we're going to pray more and pray better. But, but what is likely meant here is something more like Deuteronomy 6, where the word is on your mind and on your lips when you rise up and when you go to bed, when you go out and when you come back in all the time. But it's not just prayer in general that he's talking about. We can get more specific. He says praise. Seven times a day, I praise you. Remember that there are different kinds of prayer. You may have heard of ACTS, A-C-T-S. Four different kinds of prayer. It's a good place to start. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, or requests. It seems to me that many Christians focus on thanksgiving and maybe more supplication. Lord, I thank you that blessing, blessing, blessing. Lord, we pray that you would ask, ask, ask. 
And those are good things to do and good things to pray, but we should wonder whether we're out of balance. Confession might be third on that list of prioritized kinds of prayers. And adoration or praise might be last, which is crazy when you think about the fact that we're talking to an infinitely glorious God who has described himself with such detail in his word. To come to him vaguely, to come to him generally, to come to him with thanksgiving but not describing him, to come to him with our requests without banking them on who he is. Oh, what a missed opportunity. And we can get more specific than that. Notice it's not just prayer, not just praise in general, but praise for the word. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. He praises God for the Bible. The thought of the Bible and its necessity and its sufficiency and its reliability and its proven usefulness in his life. That thought crosses his mind multiple times a day and he stops to give voice to that to God in thanks and praise. I'm convicted by that example. I I need to praise God more for his word. And I have a very Bible-oriented life and even job. And I, I need to thank God for his word more. I need to use the effusive language that he uses. Like in verse 171 and 172, My lips pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. This is now far beyond prayer. This is even far beyond what looks like private praise, quietly or silently before the Lord. All that's good and needed, but this guy is getting loud about this stuff. And it has a hint of corporate worship to what I think. Lips and tongue, singing and pouring forth praise. This is what we do every Sunday when we gather together like this as a church. It's what we should do. It doesn't mean you do do. Do you sing? I'm not asking if you stand up when someone up front says, let's stand now and sing. Standing isn't singing. Neither is it singing to simply barely mouth the words of a song while others sing around you. You say, well, I can't sing. Well, I know what you mean. What you really mean is you can't sing well, and I understand that. But the Bible actually doesn't call on all God's people to sing well. It calls on them to sing, to sing hardly, to sing thoughtfully, to sing loudly. If you're not so good, maybe a little less loudly. (laughs) But still, sing. It's commanded. This is for God. It's not for you. If you don't sing because you can't sing well, it's likely that you're probably thinking too much of yourself in this equation. Or too little of God. He's to be sung to. It's commanded, but it should be compulsive. We can't help it. 
It's because we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. My lips will pour forth praise for you've taught me your statutes. I rejoice in your word like one who finds great spoil. Or you might say, Ryan, I'm like 10 miles away from that right now. You're talking about not just singing, which I should do, I get it but singing out of compulsion because I've encountered something amazing in the Bible? Yeah, that's another world. Well, if you're too weary, or even if you're currently away from the Lord relationally, our passage has something for you too. So fourth, please of the worry The pleas of the worry slash wayward. It's only one guy talking, but he represents the weary and the wayward. Verse 169, let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Verse 170, let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Just when you might have thought that this psalm is going to sort of escalate and escalate and And it ends on a beautiful, serene, high note. And really, the the stanza before the last was pretty darn close to that. There's mention of persecutors, but just briefly, and only as a contrast to his standing in awe of the word. But then the last stanza takes us back down to earth. This man still needs help. The problems haven't stopped. He still needs upholding, deliverance, guidance. And isn't that the Christian life? It's not linear. It's not charted on a 45-degree angle, according to a ruler. It's filled with ups and downs, ins and outs, roundabouts. And what feels like dead ends. We don't give our praise to God, dry our eyes, and never cry again. No, we're, like the Apostle Paul said, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We feel like we're about to die, and we live forevermore. Paul said we have this treasure of the gospel in these jars of clay, these bodies, so that the surpassing glory of the gospel would prove to be from God, not ourselves. These bodies feel like broken, leaky, dried up clay pots, but the gospel is the treasure. I love the simplicity of that old hymn. At least I grew up singing it. Maybe you did. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. Are you grieving over joys departed? Tell it to Jesus. Do the tears flow down your cheeks unbidden? Tell it to Jesus. Have you sins that to others' eyes are hidden? Tell it to Jesus. 
Do you fear the gathering clouds of sorrow? Tell it to Jesus. Are you troubled with the thought of dying? Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. This man said, let my cry come before you, O Lord. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me. Help me. There's also, though, the plea of the wayward. And that's in the very last verse of this long psalm. Notice 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. To go astray is, is pretty serious. It's not like, like we sang earlier, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to wander is not quite the same thing as actually wandering. And this is a kind of wandering. In context, it, it, it's clear that it's not as bad as it could be. This is not what we call full-blown apostasy, where he deserted the faith and proved that he never had it at all. No, even in the midst of his waywardness, he's still calling out and he doesn't forget God and his commandments. He admits to God that he has wandered. And he asks God to seek him out like the kind and strong shepherd that he is. Remember Psalm 23? He's got a rod and a staff. And David said, they comfort me. The staff? Oh, we can understand how that would be comforting. He leads the way. He puts it on the ground. He keeps going. It's like a walking stick. The rod? Well, that one stings, but he's faithful and good. If you're a Christian who has wandered from the Lord, however big, however small, however long, however short, do what the psalmist did here. Tell God about it. Ask him to seek you out. <clears throat> Consequences of him seeking you out be damned for your soul's sake. And turn back to him. Don't forget him. Don't forget his commandments, which are good. If you're a Christian who would quite honestly and accurately say, well, I'm not currently in that kind of season. Well, praise God. You thank him for it. He's done that, not you. And don't trust yourself in this season. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Be on guard of waywardness. Now, as we begin to wrap this up, let me... Bring us back to that whole thing we began with of the organization of the book of Psalms and how Psalm 119 fits within it. I said there is purposeful organization within the Psalms and there is a messianic or kingly purpose to its organization. Now it's true, the book of Psalms invites everyone into the blessed life if they will meditate on God's word day and night and delight in it. And that's how Psalm 119 begins. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who do no wrong. Ooh, 
well, that just got hard. That just cut me out. I know theologically it just cut you out as well. None of us have met those standards. And yet we can say, humanly speaking, relatively speaking, there have been some remarkable examples of God's servants, at least for sinners, going through trouble with the Bible and in prayer before the face of God pretty well. King David was one of those. You might know King David for his season of sin against Bathsheba and her husband and really all of Israel. But it was true when God said he is a man after God's own heart. And his psalms in times of trouble are remarkable examples of trust and passion. Just like the Psalm 119 man, whoever he was, it might have been David, I think it probably was someone else later on. But he was a remarkable example, almost an unfair template of someone who walked closely with God and with his word. But apparently he was, like us, a man, a sinner. And so he said, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. You might think that Psalm 119 ends on a bit of a, de- a dud, a bit of a, a bummer. Well, from one angle, we can answer that and say, no, this is actually quite realistic. Even the best of men are but men still. It's true that we can say, this man is not only modeled for us, how to do Bible, how to do prayer, how to relate to trials. But now at the end, he is actually modeling for us repentance. Yes and amen to all that. But from another angle, we can say, well, apparently this isn't the one. Apparently there there needs to be more Bible after Psalm 119. Apparently, this is not the promised one. Apparently, at this time of the writing of Psalm 119, God's people were still in need of a king who walks with God perfectly. We need one who didn't go astray, not even for a moment. Even better, we need one who can seek us and shepherd us back to God. And we've already sung of who this is. I'll simply read it from John 10 where Jesus himself said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold of Israel. And I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. If you're not a Christian, there's enough information right here to keep you busy until God saves you. And then there's more for you to chew on for an eternity after that. We are wayward sheep. We've gone astray from God, every single one of us. 
but God sent his son, who was God himself, as a divine human shepherd who not only leads stray sheep, but he died for wayward sheep who deserve to die. And through his death, and through his wooing, we could say, he brings sheep into the fold where there is salvation and life and even fellowship. One flock, one shepherd, it keeps growing. He's adding to it day by day. Many of us in this room have known and experienced the shepherd and his pen and his sometimes smelly sheep. But they're his sheep. And he's purifying them. We pray that today you would come to believe all that and join us under the shepherd in his pen. Perhaps today you would hear his voice. Now this doesn't mean that Psalm 119 now isn't about you or for you, that it's only about Jesus and he fulfilled it for you so you can just mark completed in your Bibles and turn the page. No, no. Yes, it's a wonderfully lofty example for us, but doesn't it also point us to a hope beyond itself, a hope beyond ourselves? It gives us hope for when we fail. It gives us hope for even seasons of waywardness. The shepherd is stronger. He's better. And so we can trust him. And that all the more motivates me to want to go to his word, to get more of it, to rejoice in it, like one who has found great treasure. Let's pray for his help. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word to us today. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were and are the word incarnate. We thank you, Lord, that you are the shepherd. We thank you for your sacrifice for us, wayward sheep. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness by your spirit to open up our plugged ears that we might listen to your voice and recognize it. So we pray, Lord, for those with us who haven't yet come to know Jesus like this. We pray they would today. Lord, we pray as your sheep, you'd purify us, you'd keep us, you'd protect us. We pray our eyes would be on you. We pray you'd feed us and feed us from your word. May it be so for your namesake. Amen.